Okay. Now, to begin with, I asked Norm, who had sent me this link. I came back from vacation, which was wonderful, by the way. And I had a whole pile of emails. And one of them was that Norm sent me a link to an article from John MacArthur. And, Norm, could you give us a little summary of MacArthur's uh, article and what he's saying to us? Okay. Um, well, I've been thinking uh, for the last few weeks about this whole issue of Christians and politics and and uh, and so forth. So I run across this link uh, by John MacArthur entitled uh, in an article entitled Christians and Politics. And and in there he talks about you know the responsibility that Christians have to vote and to uh, you know have the right Christian values and all that. But but then what happens when we become so aligned with a political party and so forth that people see us as as that that party and and it begins to affect the ability to preach the gospel and to uh, to have an effective witness that way because we become so aligned with that and so he he really fleshes this out and talks about in history what has happened when Christians have become uh very politically motivated, and it goes all the way back through the Crusades and and times like that. And it's always been not so good results when Christians get heavily involved in the political side. And okay, so, he, so then if we could summarize his position, it would be that we should exercise our citizenly responsibilities to vote? Yes, we should. We we need to do that. It's a privilege and a, and a right that we have to vote and to to support the Christian values and that, but we don't want to become so aligned that people see us as a party, as linked with a party. Yeah, okay, that's a good point. So because the point would be that then uh, rather than hearing the gospel we have to preach, they just look at us as some enemy to try to vote against. Correct, because we need to evangelize all people, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, Independents, or whatever. And, And when we paint them out because they see us as, oh, you're a Republican or whatever party you might be, then they tune us out. They don't even want to listen to us because they think we're just coming across with a political message. Okay, so uh, that's MacArthur's report on this. So um, you want to bring the mic back to Bill? Can I not uh, live out my Christian life uh, uh, in, a, in the political and in the uh, in the commercial realm, in all realms of life, I was told I was told by some people very close to me that I could never take Jesus Christ into the workplace, and uh, and I rejected that comment. And and uh, I did take Jesus Christ into the workplace, not not uh, not without consequences, but. F- for me to just, you know, pray to Jesus and live out my Christian life and witness to a few people and not, not, uh, cause my Christianity to, um, to affect society, um, I think I'd be missing the mark. Okay. Let me respond to that. I would, I believe that we should be salt and light. And I think MacArthur said the same thing. But if we are suggesting that to be a Christian means to be a member of a certain political party, that's misleading people, okay? And I think we should exercise our right to debate ideas in the public arena. If you, I would refer you to the article I wrote uh, entitled um, The Gospel to Mars Hill, Not Mars Hill into the Church, 
okay, that we go out in all arenas of public debate, but our, the main reason we're going out there is to bring the gospel out there, not to say, uh, to subtly suggest to people, now if you follow certain rules, then, then you'll be a Christian. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we've failed God, we've broken His law, the wrath of God is directed against our sin, and we need to repent and believe the gospel. Okay? But if we give the impression that, well, if I vote for the right candidate, that makes me a Christian. No, it doesn't work that way. Okay? That's, that's, all, that's what we're trying to say uh, uh, here. What about running for office? <laughs> well, gee, you can't let me off the hook, can you? I had a discussion here privately. Actually, Dave Hunt was, uh, the last time he spoke here, or maybe two times ago, we ended up having lunch together, and, and that topic came up. And Dave Hunt's of, of the opinion that no Christian should ever run for office because politics involves compromise. And he said, there's no way you can run for office without compromising, so we should stay out of that. That was Dave's opinion. Now, I disagreed with him at the time and said that I don't know that uh, running for office is a forbidden vocation. Okay, uh, I would not confuse that with, uh, you know, preaching the gospel or whatever. I, I, I would not say that myself. I don't know that there's some biblical principle that forbids a Christian to be involved in government. Um, but on the other hand, I, he, Dave may be right. If you ran for office and you really held the line and didn't compromise, you probably wouldn't get elected anyhow. But there's, it's not a sin to get not elected, I guess. <laughs> you know, in light of the developments with uh, Greg Boyd and uh, Mac Hammond and all that, uh, I guess the only two examples, I guess, in running for office I can find in the Bible is of Daniel and of Joseph. And would those be suitable models? Okay. Um, well, they didn't run for office in those days because they didn't have a vote. <laughs> I mean, but they were, <laughs> they were yeah. I think a good analogy probably would be Daniel. He ended up in a political arena, and he was a model citizen in Babylon until they passed this bogus law saying he can't pray because they know that when it came to that, he'd obey God rather than man. So I think Daniel's a great example that if you do find yourself in that kind of position, be a good citizen. And be exemplary in your behavior so that you don't bring shame upon the gospel. And Daniel did. But if, if it comes to the compromise where you can't pray or some other essential Christian command from Jesus Christ, then you have to obey God rather than man. And it might cost you your job. Is that, I think Daniel, that's a good point. Uh, uh, come on. Larry. Larry. <laughs> See, I'm remembering the people I just met. I can't remember people I know for a long time. <laughs> See, the brain only has so many names in there. When one goes in, another one goes out the back. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Larry, you, you make a very good point. I think Daniel probably would be uh, the best uh, role model that you can find anywhere in the Bible because he really was in a difficult situation, was tempted to compromise, but every time refused to. But he was in a position of power. But he was in a position of power, so was Joseph, and God used them. So I... I, I really love Dave Hunt, but I'm di going to disagree with him on that point. Uh, he maybe just has a different idea. This was 10 years ago. Yes. I just want to make a comment that um, one time I was listening to the radio, and I heard of a minister being in the legislature. Yeah, that's true. They have people that are pastors that also are 
in the legislature. Uh, legislature. So <coughs> I don't know how they have time to do that. <laughs> I know I wouldn't, that's for sure. All right, enough of that. Because we got the election coming up, here's our advice. Go vote. See you next week. <laughs> Sometimes we have to vote and hold our nose while we're doing it, right? (laughs) Did you vote? Yeah, but I didn't enjoy it. Okay. We are talking about the comfort of God. Remember two weeks ago, I wasn't here last week, but two weeks ago, I had given you the assignment to look for themes. And, And I want not only to teach 2 Corinthians or... Um, Luke or Genesis or whatever it is that I'm preaching on or teaching on, I also have a greater desire to equip you to be able to interpret the Bible for yourself. I want you to have the tools to read, to understand, to be able to uh, have uh, the ability to discern because you know how to read. The Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it uses human languages that follow the norms of languages. And so, therefore, someone that learns to read properly can learn to understand the Bible. Now, there are people that can read well and understand the Bible who aren't believers. But they can accurately tell you what it means. And I could give you examples of that. For instance, Rudolf Bultmann. Uh, I use this example. Rudolf Bultmann, who was this guy who wanted to demythologize the Bible, didn't believe in the supernatural. But he was given the assignment in, in back in the 20th century in a theological dictionary in the New Testament, his assignment was to read, to write an, uh, an entry in that dictionary about the word pistuo, to believe, or pistis, faith, and tell what it meant, Old Testament, intertestamental, Greek world, New Testament, Paul, and so on. And he writes this essay, and he gets it absolutely right. He doesn't have faith, but he knows what they meant. In other words, he knew what Paul meant by faith by using a grammatical historical method. So you don't gain knowledge of the Bible by secret information or by some decoder ability that is some sort of an intuitive or or, uh, mystical process. You learn the Bible because it's written in human languages objectively so we can read it. Okay, And it's able to make us wise unto salvation. So one of the tools of reading is to see themes. If somebody writes you a letter... Whoever it might be, let's say you have uh, a nephew who decided to go on to a trip overseas and a nephew writes you a letter and in the letter he tells you about the way they eat in the country that he's in and so he describes various types of food and how they eat it and, how, and their norms in that le- of, of restaurants and stuff. Well, you read the letter, you figure out that the theme of the letter is the nephew's experience with food in another country. We do that continually, and we're able to communicate. Now, what's going on that's so destructive? And I read a book on all the way out to Myrtle Beach. We were in Myrtle Beach last week, and I read a heresy book on the way out and a true book on the way back. So, And these books were preparation for writing a book on the emergent church. So I read this postmodern theology on the way out, and they're denying that words can convey meaning. And they use the Holy Spirit all the time in their denial. They, they, they talk about the Holy Spirit continually. And so what they say is the Bible is God's story, and everything's narrative in their mind. And stories 
are living things, not static or dead. And the Holy Spirit is working in the church as we participate in God's story and we come up with our own meanings for our own group. Now, this is a very, hundreds of pages of fine print going over and over this. And all that is, is a very sophisticated way of saying the reader determines the meaning. All right? That's what they're teaching. And I'm going to have a chapter in my book about that, about how they do that. The reader determines the meaning. So they say, no, no, we have an interpretive. The church is an interpretive community. Uh, and the church as an interpretive community has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is telling this interpretive community, the church, what the Bible means. But what's the problem with that is how do you know the Mormons aren't really the church? And the Mormons don't have the Holy Spirit. And the Mormons have the right interpretive community. And the Mormon doctrine of Christ might be the true one. Who's to determine whether they're right or we're wrong? Because the Holy Spirit inspired authors of Scripture no longer determine the meaning. The readers do. And so the Mormons can say, our reading is as good as your reading, and we're a narrative community, and we have the Holy Spirit. <coughs> so they say, and they have a burning in their bosom. And so our interpretation is correct. And you're in a quagmire of relativism and mysticism. Whereas we're saying, <coughs> God didn't leave us to our own devices to determine meaning. God inspired certain individuals, the prophets, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, as we keep going back to, and that they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit inerrantly the words of God in human languages that can be understood by humans. And that we can read and that the meaning is determined by the Holy Spirit-inspired author, not by us, the reader. Otherwise, there's as many meanings as there are readers. And that's, our, that's our position, and that's the hermeneutic that Ryan is teaching when he teaches hermeneutics. So, you are the readers. And my interpretation isn't more authoritative than yours. What's important is what Paul said. So, I'm trying to give you tools so you can do this. Now, last week, as we used our little assignment, we, two weeks ago, we found out that the theme here is comfort, and the other theme is afflictions and sufferings. So, Paul's talking about sufferings as the experience, his experience, and as the experience in general of Christians. And he's teaching us that in our sufferings, because they are, there's a redemptive work of God in our midst, there is comfort or encouragement. Now, remember we talked about that word translated comfort. It, it has a range of meanings. And comfort, encouragement, it can also mean consolation. And maybe some of your translations translate it that way. We're in 2 Corinthians 1.4. And... Not only is suffering part of the Christian experience, so is comfort and consolation, and that this whole process of suffering with consolation and comfort has a purpose of giving us a ministry. It has a purpose of giving us a ministry of consolation. That when we preach the gospel, we aren't some um, people on a pedestal who have lived uh, a fairy tale life who've never had any difficulties, and uh, therefore we uh, have some unique experience that nobody could relate to. No, we're, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And we have suffered. We do suffer. We will suffer until Christ returns. But what we know that the world doesn't know is that there's consolation in suffering if, indeed, you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Because otherwise, you suffer, 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 and then you have no hope. And, and there's no point to it. And it becomes unbearable and meaningless and hopeless. And that drives people to despair. So it says here in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, 4, who comforted us in all of our affliction so that, here's a reason clause, so that we may be able to comfort or console those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Notice the repeat of the word comfort, which I said is the, uh, can also mean exhort in other contexts or encourage in other contexts or uh, one way of saying it is consolation. So here the context would indicate consolation or comfort. I think consolation really would be a very good translation here because it's never really our desire to be suffering. We don't go try to create suffering so we can be better Christians. That is the error that arose in church history, by the way. Because people read passages like this and say, okay, so if we go out and suffer and we find consolation from God, that's a good thing. Absolutely. Well, I'm not getting enough suffering, so I think I'll join a monastery and and sleep on a granite floor and have somebody whip me. And this is that that error, that error is has a name. It's called asceticism, and it's assuming that you can create a higher order of spirituality by purposely severely treating your body. But Jesus, but Paul said in, in uh, Colossians two that these things have no value. Severe treatment of the body has no value against fleshly indulgence. You can't beat the flesh out of yourself. <laughs> Are you glad? <laughs> um, the flesh needs to be crucified, not just pounded on by some monk in a monastery somewhere. All right, now let's talk about some of these words. Comfort, um, parakalesis, and it's, that term parakalesis and its cognates are used 29 times in 2 Corinthians. And then there's another word, in our afflictions. The word there, philipsis, philipsis, I mean, philipsis, theta, Ellipses um, can either be external distresses, the word can be translated pressure, uh, by the way. It can either be external distress, like such as Paul went through, as you can read in his missionary journeys, or it can also mean inner torment. And I think as Christians, we, we experience both things, external distresses and inner torment. And inner torment can be caused by a lot of things. I think the most common cause of inner torment for those, for, for a lot of us is what happens to people that we love and family relationships and people that, that, that betray us or people like our, if our own kids go astray, what, what sorrows. Uh, I, how many Christian parents I've known in the last 30 years whose hearts are just filled with torment and pressure because of watching a son or daughter self-destruct and having no possible way of stopping it. And so um, Paul felt that sort of thing about his churches, the Lord's churches. And he expresses that in 2 Corinthians. Paul's, one of his distresses was that the people he loved, the people he poured out his life for, the people he cared the most about, would turn against him and hate him. And they would listen to false apostles, and they'd listen to slander against Paul, 
And he ended up having to defend himself in ways that he wished he didn't have to. And that's certainly a theme in 2 Corinthians. So we go through these afflictions. Um, all the afflictions we have faced. So Paul, if he wanted to translate it very literally, he said all the afflictions we have faced. So these are concrete incidents, not just the theoretical idea. Gave Paul a ministry of comfort and consolation. Let me say something about that as far as I think it applies to all people, but it certainly applies to pastors. One of the things that, that happens that God's done in my life is that before, what is there a psalm that says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I remembered thy ways? What is that? Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. When I was a young man in the ministry in, in, in the 80s, when I turned 30 in 1980, and during that decade, I was so full of self-confidence. I was so full of... I'd, I'd, I'd have to say, I think the thing that was not good was that I just felt like anybody could do what they're supposed to do, just buck up and do it. Would you agree with that, Diane? <laughs> that's, that's how, that was just it. My, my idea was when people were struggling, well, what's wrong with you? Get your act together. Is that right? <laughs> Diane saying amen, amen. <laughs> but the decade of the 90s, which was uh, marked by, and I've told you some of the stories, by many, many difficulties, was something that was absolutely necessary to get that attitude out of me because if this thing here wasn't true before. I didn't, people didn't find comfort from me. They just found, you know, you better get your act together. And after getting beat up by life, you come, you, you, I think what happens is you become more gospel centric because you just realize it isn't that I'm strong, it isn't that I'm young, it isn't that I'm more motivated than everybody else. Or it isn't that I'm some great Christian. It's that God is a merciful God. And, uh, and, uh, but by God's grace, I would certainly always go astray. And you find that through afflictions more than you find it through just being young and strong and not having any problems. It's a good thing because I'm never going to be young and strong again. <laughs> <laughs> At least till the resurrection, then we'll solve that problem. <laughs> Now, there's no cure for suffering in the Christian life, but there is comfort in knowing that God uses it. There's no cure for suffering in the Christian life, but there's comfort in knowing that God uses it. And something, sometimes whether it's our children or people we witness to that we would like to see, understand the gospel more clearly, they often see more of God's work of grace in us and how we respond to difficulty than they see and how we can just solve problems because of our natural abilities. And when we come under this kind of pressure, it's only the grace of God that gets us through it. I'm going to read those verses in 119. Okay. Oh, here. Hold on. Here's that verse that I was referring to. Uh, 119.67 is, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. And then in 71... It says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn my statutes. And off to the side, I've got a marginal note here. 
referring to the prodigal son in Luke 15, which is a perfect example. Oh, the prodigal son, yeah. He ended up afflicted and learned that things weren't so bad in his father's house after all. Um, well, let's look up a few cross-references. Um, let's start with Patrick over here. Is this still on verse 4? Uh, yes. Uh, Acts 9 and verse 16. Um, Linda, Psalm 32-7. And Diane, Psalm 34-2-6. And uh, Greg, right? I'm doing all right. <laughs> Isaiah 12.1. Larry, Isaiah 51.12. Now I don't know your name. Link. Link. That's right. You're Carl's friend. John. Uh, John. I wonder which. I'm scribbled there. All right. We'll go to one I wrote clearly. <laughs> 2 Thessalonians 2.16 and 17. I'm not sure about that other one. Okay. Acts 9.16 For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And that's uh, God talking to Ananias. Okay, so that is an interesting passage because that was the, the story of Paul's conversion in Acts 9. Can you imagine you're a new Christian and the first thing word that comes to you from God is, I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer. <laughs> that's, that's what happened with Paul. Okay, you're going to suffer, not for punishment, but for my name. In other words, in order that he might testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's life was certainly marked by suffering. And that later in 2 Corinthians, he'll give these lists of, of the affliction lists, so to speak, of what he's been through. Then uh, Psalm 32 and verse 7. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Yeah, we sing that sometimes. <laughs> Psalm 34, 2 through 6. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. <laughs> Great. Cry out to God. <laughs> In your troubles. Isaiah 12 and verse 1. Uh, then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. So your anger was turned away and you comforted me. And then Isaiah uh, 51, 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? Okay. God comforts us, so don't be afraid of man. Then Second Thessalonians two, sixteen and seventeen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Okay, that's it. So there's a lot about that in the Bible. Last week we referenced Isaiah forty and verse one, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, and we looked in that context, and saw, or two weeks ago, and saw that it had to do with the removal of sins. The great comfort that we have above all other comforts is that our sins have been forgiven. Amen. 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 Remember the disciples were casting out demons. They were rejoicing in that. And what did Jesus say? 
Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but that your names are in the Lamb's book of life. And so if you read the, some of the songs of praise that you find in the book of Revelation, they're referencing salvation and atonement and the Lamb who was slain, things like that. Okay, so Second Corinthians 1 in verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also is our comfort, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. The sufferings of Christ, an interesting um, concept, and it's a little, it has some interpretive difficulties. In the Greek construction, one of the ways they construct is using the genitive. And when you have a genitive, sometimes you have a genitive of possession or the genitive of source. And so it could be the sufferings of Christ. In other words, the ones he owned, the sufferings that Christ himself experienced. Or it could be sufferings that come to us because of Christ or because of the gospel. So I, let me find some notes here. Let me just share with you how this is handled in a quality commentary. Uh, If I can find my 65. You know, sometimes you read the term a critical commentary, and I want to explain that to you unless you get scared away from something that's really good. Some people hear the term critical, and it means they interpret it to mean that you're criticizing the Bible. But that's not what it means in a technical sense in, in literature. A critical tom- commentary means one that looks into all the issues about the text and tells you what the issues are and helps you understand it so that you can make a correct interpretation. All right. A, a, a difference between a critical commentary and, a, a, let's say, kind of a pastoral or expository commentary would be, this, the latter would be more like sermons. It would be, Here's this verse, and I like Spurgeon on the Psalms. It's just sermons. He doesn't spend a lot of time trying to understand what the Hebrew and the context necessarily and what the issues are historically and what and so on, so on, so on. He's saying, look at this wonderful psalm, and then he preaches a sermon. Those are wonderful commentaries, and people love uh, Spurgeon on the Psalms, but they're of no value to me as a pastor because it's my job to preach a sermon. I want somebody to tell me what the text is doing. I just assume make up, I, I want to preach my own sermon, not Spurgeon's sermon. But uh, there's two different kinds. So when I'm uh, preparing to teach or preach, I use critical commentaries because they're telling me what the issues are. So let me just give you a little insight into how this works because there's an issue of sufferings of Christ. It's an interpretive issue. And what do we mean by it? And, and this particular um, commentary gives four possibilities of what it means. And then defends one, which is kind of what you'd like to see. Um, this is by Garland. Sufferings. What are the sufferings of Christ? One of you understands them to be sufferings on account of Christ. Paul refers to the suffering that comes to him as a loyal apostle to Christ who preaches a message that sparks violent reactions from those who remain savagely hostile to God in this world. See 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 12. Those who preach the gospel in this fallen world especially will especially be especially exposed to dangers of suffering. The question arises, however, whether the genitive case alone expresses this concept. 
The second view takes the phrase as a genitive of sorts. In other words, Paul refers to sufferings ordained by Christ for believers. And that would be any reference to Acts 9.16 that Patrick read. What things you must suffer for my sake, it was said to him. The third view interprets the phrase to mean sufferings associated with the Messiah, that is, messianic sufferings. Paul may have had in mind birth pains of the Messiah that God's people must undergo prior to the coming of the kingdom. Jewish apocalyptic writings foretell disasters coming upon the world as a prelude to the end time, ushering in the new age. Now there the term new age doesn't mean what we mean the new age movement. It means the age of Messiah after he returns. Okay? In terms you got a new range of meanings, which may be labeled the birth pangs of Messiah. A fourth view understands Paul to be referring to sufferings Christ himself endured. This interpretation would mean that the solidarity between Christ and his followers also applies to his sufferings. Christians are baptized into Christ's death and are called to endure the same sufferings to go to dark assembly with Christ. Paul speaks of being heirs and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share his sufferings in order that we may share his glory. Romans 8.17 he tells the Philippians he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3.10-12. He also tells the Galatians that he bears the marks of Jesus in his body. Galatians 6.17. The passage in 2 Corinthians 4.10-11 should tip the scales toward this last view. So, Notice how he shares the views and it gives reasons why he favors the last one. Not that any of the others would actually be teaching false doctrine. Because there's truth to the fact that we suffer because of the gospel and so on. And that Christ has ordained sufferings. But the way you interpret when there's a question is you look, first of all, to how the same author uses the concept in the very writing you're studying. All right. And then you look where the same author uses the same concept in other of his writings on the same topic. And so what Garland did was here's what Paul did in other places with this same concept and how he applied it. And then the, the capstone is 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 11. That's how he interpreted it in this very passage. So therefore we favor it in that way. So I share that with you, not to bore you with my, you know, the background work that I did in order to prepare for teaching but to give you an idea of what you do yourselves as you interpret. Okay? Because I'm trying to do the two things. Teach what the Bible says and give you the tools to interpret. And a good critical commentary is a helpful tool, or several of them. And But what happens as you learn hermeneutics and you learn how to read is you learn how to tell whether that commentary is good or bad yourself. You, you, you can tell whether this guy is giving you good evidence or you don't like what he's saying. Because they can certainly be wrong. Anybody can be wrong. Okay, so here the sufferings of Christ would be those, like Paul talks about in Philippians 3, that we are one with Christ, we're baptized into Christ, and his sufferings are part of our lot in life because we're so associated with him, and we have a, this fellowship of sufferings. And, and, and uh, let's turn to that passage. Uh, could you bring the mic to... Dean, could you look up the passage that he was referencing, Second uh, Corinthians four ten and eleven? He claims that that gives um, a good sense of Paul's likely meaning in two Corinthians one five. 
Second uh, Corinthians 4.10 is always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the, the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are <coughs> always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. All right, there he's, he's making that an interpretive, I mean, a, 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 a experience of Christians. Now, there's other passages where Paul uses the same kind of terminology. In Romans 8, he says, we're always accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Remember that passage? Um, and so, it, it's, it's basically being crucified with Christ means that we're walking through life dead to this world. And we're suffering because we're in continual conflict with everything around us. We can't agree with where the world's going. We can't agree with what people believe and say. We can't agree with the editorial page of the paper. <laughs> That's an understatement. <clears throat> and there is this dying to this world that is... Uh, Bill, could you bring it back to Bill? There's this dying uh, to this sinful world and dying to our own flesh that's a continual experience... And it's Christ dying because we're baptized into his death, according to Romans 6. Does that make sense? Okay, Bill. There are those uh, out there, uh, uh, well-meaning Christians, who say that, uh, 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 and they use this, this very verse, that we should just die to the flesh, and the, no, no matter what the government would say to us, that we should just go along with it. Uh, the government's prepared to inject uh, all of us with an RFID chip, I don't hear any pastors talking about that. But when it comes to that, are they going to be using this passage and saying, well, you just need to die die to Christ and just take the mark? Um, are, are they going to say that? Okay, well, I don't agree that that's the mark of the beast. Uh, but when the time comes, according to Revelation, if indeed we're here, I mean, there's a dispute whether that whether the rapture happens first and then the mark of the beast, or some people say that the rapture is later. But in either regard, if we happen to be a Christian alive on the face of the earth, for whatever reason, maybe we're saved during the Great Tribulation, when the mark comes, taking the mark of the beast is not suffering for Christ, it's rebelling against Christ. Okay? So I would say, no, we cannot do that. Because according to Revelation, if we take the mark of the beast, we cannot be saved. We cannot be saved. So there, I wouldn't, I'm not saying that we submit to evil in order to suffer for Christ. Nor is Paul saying that. We suffer for Christ because we submit to Christ, who alone is good and true and holy and righteous. So that's uh, what we're saying. Okay. Now, let's look at this here. Uh, sufferings of Christ, so we interpret that a certain uh, as uh, like Romans 8. Oh, here's another passage. Could you bring uh, Romans 8, 17 and 18? Uh, I also wanted to, to discuss. And then as she's looking for that, it says, Our R is in abundance. Now here it says, Overflow, uh, profit, which means profit or surplus. So we have a surplus of suffer, sufferings, but more than balanced by comfort. So it's like the terminology in the Greek would be like a balance sheet, where on the one side you have sufferings, and on the other side you have comforts, and the comforts are greater than the sufferings. There's more comfort then there is suffering. There's more benefit and blessing in Christ than whatever suffering we may have. Now, the past, that illustrates very clearly by the passage that Lois is going to read. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and long, um, long, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with them, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Okay, so he says the sufferings of this present time, which are the sufferings of Christ, are um, not even comparable to the glory that will be revealed in the future at the resurrection. And that there will be a time when we look back on whatever sufferings we had and see that they were like nothing compared to the glory. Now, there's different analogies for that. One of of them is found in John where it talks about childbirth, that the pains of childbirth are bad, but the joy of having a child is greater until they're teenagers. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm, I'm never <laughs> not to uh, mess with the analogy. He's talking about a baby here, okay. <laughs> so, uh, consolation, as I said, would be uh, a possible translation. So, there's consolation in Christ. So, uh, Claire, um, could you have Claire read? Could you look up Colossians 1.24? When you get a chance, we'll talk about... Uh, oh, I'm going to talk about Colossians 1.24. is a very interesting verse, and I'm going to show you something about it. it. It seems it's a verse that Catholics use to justify their practice of asceticism. In other words, and their idea of adding to the merits of Christ. Sometimes some Roman Catholics uh, will... In fact, this is taught in, in their tradition, that we have to add to the merits of Christ. And so they think that you can suffer the sufferings that, that we might be able to go through, especially if we take on this works of super irrigation, works above and beyond Christ, that therefore we can add to the merits of Christ and add to his sufferings and add to the saving value of Christ. And we deny that. But here's the, here's the passage. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Yeah, it for the, says okay. for the sake of his body, which is the church. So it says, um, fill up in, in my flesh what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So the, in Roman Catholic interpretation is that Christ's sufferings weren't really enough. The, the saints, the, I mean, not, not, well, they have their own idea of saints, but that certain hyper holy ones can actually take on these works of super irrigation and take religious vows and add and suffer vicariously for other people and add to what Christ did. And that's their proof passage. But it's interesting. Um, let me get my translation of that. I, was, I heard in, uh, uh, in one of the first years that I was at Bethel Seminary, they had John Piper speak at chapel, which something would never happen today. But he spoke about that passage and showed that in the Greek, the passage make up for means is used elsewhere in Philippians, and I later found that myself when I was teaching through Philippians. And that is, um, ah, I got so many papers in there, I can't flip through my Bible. So what happened is that uh, in, in the Philippians, it says that Epaphroditus made up for what was lacking in the gift 
that was being sent by the Philippians. And I used the same word in the Greek that Paul used in Colossians 1. And what Epaphroditus did to make up for what was lacking was he carried the gift to Paul. Paul was in prison in Rome, and, and this man risked his life to bring the love gift to Paul in Rome. So, interpreting Colossians 1.24 in light of the passage in Philippians, it says here, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, if, if, if it means the same thing in Colossians does in Philippians, it means this. By Paul bringing the gospel, <coughs> excuse me, by Paul bringing the gospel to the Colossians, what was lacking wasn't the sufficiency of Christ's sufferings, but the message of them being brought to them, or the, the gift of life being brought to them. So just as Epaphroditus made up what was lacking for that gift by bringing it to Paul, he made up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions by bringing the message of the saving value of those to the Colossians. So there you go. Now you solved the problem in the Bible. <laughs> So I'm, and I, uh, I'm owing to John Piper to be the first one to alert me to that interpretation, which he came across just studying for a sermon, looking things up in the Greek. And that brings us to Colossians 1 and verse 6. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. No, excuse me. Let's start over again. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. So, as I mentioned in Colossians, the gospel came to them through Paul's sufferings. Salvation was found in the gospel, not in Paul's sufferings. Only Jesus' sufferings are sufficient to be a vicarious substitute for us. We can't pay for somebody else's sins ourselves. Only Christ can pay for sins. But what Paul was able to do was to demonstrate the truth of the gospel by being so committed to it that he would bring it to other cities and other lost people in spite of how much suffering he has to go through. He wouldn't allow that to dissuade him one bit from preaching the gospel. I think one of the most uh, startling examples of that is found in Acts where he went into one city and they stoned him and, and left him for dead. But he didn't actually die and they got him up and he went to the next city and he preached the gospel. <laughs> they couldn't stone the gospel out of Paul. <laughs> But it, somebody told me the story they heard MacArthur preaching the other day about retiring. Yeah, he was preaching and, and somebody asked him when he was going to retire. And he says, retire? You don't retire from the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I have some, let, let me hand out some verses because then I have some notes that I want to look up. Um, Noel? If you could look up Romans 5, 3 through 5, and then Pat, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23, 
And while you're looking for those, let me go here and find my note. Okay, Romans 5, 3 through 5. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Amen. So there again talks about the value of afflictions and how they bring about perseverance. Perseverance, by the way, is used here, I believe, enduring. The word patient enduring in the New American Standard. Patient enduring is hupomone, which means to stay under. And that's where you get this, also the word often translated perseverance. And then the next passage uh, was 1 Corinthians 3.21 to 23. So then that no one boasted men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Okay. Amen. Here's what uh, I wanted to quote to you. Paul turns, Garland says this, Paul turns it around and argues that his affliction is for their comfort and salvation. Then there's a note. Some Greek manuscripts don't have and salvation. Now, again, that arises other issues. Uh, and don't let that bother you. That's, here's what I want to say about that. Don't let it bother you. There are thousands of Greek manuscripts. And the reason we have variants is because of our riches. Okay? And if you want to study apologetics and, and ancient manuscripts, some of the worldly writers like Homer or whatever, they don't have they have hardly any manuscripts for a thousand years after the thing was written, and maybe only one. So they don't have variants because they only have one. They have no idea how close that is to what Homer actually was. All right? But we have thousands of them because the Christians cherish the Bible and, and people transcribed it all around the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean basin in various places. And families of manuscripts arose because maybe one was here and one was there, and then they, and so then you can compare these things. Now there's there's a process of figuring out what the original was, and that's where we get variants. And it's not some evil conspiracy to take things out of the Bible. All right, it's it's just the way manuscript stuff. And if you want to study that, it's very interesting. But here's what I want to say: I've been studying variants for years as I read these commentaries, and I look up the Greek, and I have the ability to compare even many different Greek manuscripts now with the new software I have. Never are these things um, going to alter forever some essential Christian doctrine. All of our doctrines can be established no matter what these variants might say. Because in this one, uh, and salvation, let's just say if it's for our comfort and doesn't have and salvation. Well, we have plenty of doctrine of salvation everywhere. Now, as a matter of fact, if it does say that, then we have to say, well, why would he say that? Because normally Paul's affliction isn't going to save somebody. So then we have to say, well, because it was him bringing the gospel. 
But either way, we're not going to go into error, depending on which textual man, uh, variant we follow. So there, okay, there was no extra charge for that. <laughs> okay. <coughs> he came to them, according to Garland, he says this, he came to them in suffering, but brought them the gospel. How can they, how can they disdain what brought them their new life in Christ? See, here's what was going on behind the scenes with Paul and his relationship to this church. The false teachers were saying, Paul is a despicable character. He's always in prison. He's, he, he's, he's, his speech is contemptible. His presence is un, his, his appearance is unimpressive. All the stone, can you imagine what he looked like? They didn't have plastic surgeons in those days. Stoned and beaten and whipped and shipwrecked. He had to be just look like this scarred up, horrible looking person. And so the false teachers were suggesting, well, look at this guy. If he had some true message from God, you wouldn't think he'd be in better condition than this. That's what they're saying. So Paul is defending himself against that kind of charge. Why are you like this? And he says, I'm like this so that I might bring you the gospel and you might be saved. And you're despising something that shouldn't be despised. It's very harmful, very hurtful to Paul to have all that he did for the sake of Christ be ridiculed by Christians. And here's what it says here from Garland. Paul has suffered much, but he has been comforted much and passes it on to them. And they hear, how can they disdain what brought him new life in Christ? First, his afflictions come from his proclaiming the gospel by which they are saved. And Paul had chosen to shrink from the dangers he faced and to retreat unscathed to safer places. Many in the Gentile world would not have heard the saving word of the gospel. As a Christ endured suffering to bring salvation to the world, Paul endured it to bring the message of salvation to the world. Again, that's how I was interpreting Colossians 1.24. Bringing it to the world because he was willing to go through this. As a result, he is comforted by God and a comforter of others. When we see God changing lives through the gospel, through the means of grace, through the power of the word of God, for any minister of the gospel, there's nothing more comforting to see people uh, gloriously saved and then growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. That is the greatest thing. And Paul expresses that in here. And, And it motivates us to bring the word of God to you as fully and as clearly and as authoritatively with the power of the Holy Spirit that we possibly can because we believe that the more that that's the case, the more God's going to change your life. And the more that he changes your life, the more you will be able to go out in the power of the gospel and be used by God in the same way. That's how the church multiplies and grows and brings God's message to a lost world. The word enduring, hupomene, or hupomone, excuse me, means to stay under, to, to stay put. Here's uh, some discussion about hupomone as a different set of connotations in the Greek Old Testament and for the first time takes on religious meaning. It translated the Hebrew terms uh, kawa and several other words that signify expectant waiting, intense desire. And this intense desire is usually directed to God. So the, the endurance that we go through 
is because we have this expectant desire that Jesus Christ is going to return. We have this longing for the manifestation of the sons of God, which, by the way, means the resurrection. This isn't the latter rain, sons of God. They, they, they misinterpret the passage. But this hupomone uh, means that we endure and stay put steadfastly, knowing that our work is not in vain in the Lord, knowing that there's great consolation, knowing that the promises of God are true, knowing that God is going to use us, knowing that one day we'll be delivered from all of this and we'll have glory, glorified bodies and we'll be forever with the Lord. Because of those things, with this hopeful, hopeful expectation based on the unshakable promises of God, because of that, we endure. And we don't shrink from the situations that might bring difficulty we go forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the message of Paul here. And next week we'll start with verse 7. And we'll continue with Paul's defense of his procedure of preaching the gospel in front of people who weren't taking him so seriously. So the sermon today will be from Luke chapter 4. And we'll see you upstairs at 1030.